0: If you are not heading downstairs, uh, feel free to go in and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are uh, preaching through the book of Matthew. We're five chapters in now. Um, And and because we're preaching through the whole book, sometimes we'll preach some smaller sections. uh, But as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be preaching a little bit larger sections as we go through. The title today is Life in the Kingdom. I just want to start out. I want to start out by reading a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He was one of the great theologians in the 18th century, and this is what he said. He said, The soul of every man necessarily craves happiness. This is a universal appetite of human nature that is alike in the good and the bad. He then goes on to say, It's not only natural to all mankind, but to the angels. It is universal among all reasonable, intelligent beings in heaven earth or hell, because it flows necessarily from an intelligent nature. There is no rational being without a love and desire for happiness. It's impossible that there should be any creature made that should love misery or not love happiness. Blaise Pascal, a uh, a theologian in the 17th century, he said it this way, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. And I think they're right. We see this truth in scripture. Every person in this world desires happiness. You, you desire happiness. You desire joy. Marketing and sales knows this. They want you to know that your life would be better and happier if you had their product or their services. There's countless books written every year on promising you on how to have the best life now. But I just want you to think about this. Are most of the people around you happy? Do you find that you're constantly surrounded by people just filled with just hope and joy? Like, like, do you find that when you go to Walmart, like, all the people around you are just overjoyed uh, with, with kindness, and they're just doing acts of love and kindness for everyone around them? Is that your experience at Walmart? If you, if you think about it, like, politicians, uh, those are the ones who, who create rules and guidelines for, for how we live, and they promise basically happiness. They say, you know, elect me, and these are the things that we'll do for you. But I want you to think about it. When we look at their lives and we hear the way they speak, does it reflect that they have obtained happiness? Should we think that if we follow them, then surely all of our dreams and hopes will be met and satisfied? The the Bible teaches That because of sin, this world and our hearts are full of darkness. When I say sin, I mean the the fact that we have disobeyed God and we tried to find meaning and joy apart from God. And when I say darkness, I mean we live in a world where because of sin, there's, there's no hope that the world itself can offer. But the Bible teaches that there is everlasting joy and that it's found in Christ. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, we're coming to the very first teaching of Jesus... And and what do you think he's going to start with? What do you think he teaches on? He wants us to know where true, everlasting happiness and joy can be found. When we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we see humanity was created for joy and for pleasure. And what Jesus wants us to know is that that best life is not found by looking in yourselves, by looking in this world, but by looking to Christ. Jesus himself is one who offers everlasting hope, life, joy, joy. And satisfaction, and so that's what we're going to look at today in our text. The main point is every believer has been blessed by God to live a new life, so others would be saved. And so we're going to look at this new life. We're going to look at the blessings, and we're going to look at how it leads to others to being saved. And so I want to go ahead and encourage you. Uh, stand with me, and we're going to read Matthew five one through sixteen. We stand each week at the reading of God's word. Uh, this word comes from God, inspired by God so that we would be equipped and know how to live righteous lives. So here it is, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to verse 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we thank you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text that you've given us. And Father, you you tell us that we are blessed in you. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see that, that in you, in your Son, Jesus Christ, there is true hope, there's true life, joy, there's meaning, there's satisfaction. God, may we see that in this world, while there are good things, there are things of this world cannot truly satisfy our hearts. God, may we see this truth. May we understand it. Lord, may we know that as Christians, we have been saved to be light in this world, that through our actions and through our words, people would know the truth of the gospel. And God, may we live with boldness so that others will hear the truth and see and believe in your son, Jesus. God, give us eyes to see the truth of your text this morning. Give us ears to hear In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I want to start out um, and and just give some basic truths about the Sermon on the Mount. That's the beginning of this text. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5, goes through chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, it's the first of five major teachings. That's just the first thing. It's the first of five major teachings in the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew is divided up in these five teachings, and each of these teachings concludes with the words, and when Jesus finished these sayings, and so you can just go through Matthew, and every time you come across that phrase, you know that you just came across one of the major teachings that Matthew has recorded. Now, by far, the, the most famous one, the one you are most familiar with, is, is likely this one here today called the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with eight blessed statements. Now interestingly, if we were to look at all of Matthew, uh, we would see that the last teaching, starting in Matthew 23, begins with seven woes. So in a sense, Matthew here is saying, blessed, 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 live this way. In Matthew 23, woe, 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 don't live this way. So as we're in the Sermon on the Mount, he's very much calling us to live in a certain particular way. At the end of the book, he'll be saying, and then don't live this way. A second truth About the Sermon on the Mount is it's all about the kingdom of heaven. If you were here with us last week, you would remember that in chapter 4 verse 23, we're given this snapshot into the ministry of Jesus. And we're told that he he healed many people, but he also, he taught and he preached. And Matthew tells us that the content of his teaching and preaching was, was about the kingdom of heaven. And so now that we move into chapter 5, it should not be surprising that we enter into a teaching and it's all about the kingdom. In chapter 5, verse 3, he mentions the kingdom of heaven. and chapter 7, verse 21, at the end of the Sermon on Mount, he mentions the kingdom, so it bookends the entire sermon. And in fact, in our text today, the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 3, and then, chapter, uh, and then verse 10 bookends with the, the kingdom of heaven so it's an important theme that runs through the entire book. It's an important theme that runs through each of the teachings of Jesus. Now, one thing to note about the kingdom of heaven is that it is both a future and a present reality. So when Jesus came, he ushers in the kingdom of God. And we see that he says, you know that the kingdom is here because I cast out demons. So he says, the kingdom is here. In chapter 5, verse 3, he'll say, blessed are the poor in spirit for there is Is present tense is the kingdom of heaven, so the kingdom is here, and yet we know that the fullness of the kingdom will not be seen and experienced until Christ returns again. It's at that time all sin and suffering will be gone, those who reject Jesus will be judged, and all who believe in Him will live with God for all of everlasting glory. We'll come back to this throughout the sermon, so remember. The kingdom is present now and future. Number three, the sermon is an invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we see this in chapter 5, verse 1. We're told that there's there's crowds around Jesus. And then we're told, seeing the crowds, he goes up on a mountain, and when he sits down, the disciples come to him. So we might go, oh, okay, so maybe the, the crowd stayed away and only the disciples came and listened. But if we go to the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, verse 28, we read that all the crowds are astonished at Jesus' teaching. They say, we've never heard someone teach with this kind of authority. So the crowds didn't go anywhere. Potentially the disciples were were on the front row. But everyone is there. Everyone is there listening to Jesus. This sermon is for believers and unbelievers. And he ends the sermon by giving a series of, of contrasts. He says you, you're either on the narrow gate on the narrow path that leads to life or you're on the wide path that leads to destruction. You either bear fruit in keeping with the kingdom, meaning you, you obey, or you, you bear fruit that does not align with the kingdom and, and you lead toward which leads toward judgment. He said you will either build your house on, on the foundation of Jesus and believe in him, or you reject Jesus and build the foundation on, build your house on the foundation of whatever worldly desires you want, which will end in destruction. And the message is clear. Either enter the kingdom and experience life or reject the kingdom, and you will experience judgment. So as as Jesus is speaking here, as he's giving this sermon, life and death are what hangs in the balance. And he's inviting us to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And to be clear, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ, so to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be a Christian is to be a citizen in his kingdom. To reject Jesus is to not be a citizen of his kingdom. So let's dig in as we begin to see what this sermon is actually about. And the first point that I just want us to see is that every believer is graciously brought into the kingdom and given extravagant blessings. Many of you know uh, and you've heard that the sermon begins with what are called the Beatitudes or or nine blessed statements. Likely there's only eight. Probably the ninth is meant to further explain the eighth, and we'll talk about that more as we get to it. But Jesus begins the sermon by saying, blessed, 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 blessed. Pretty sure there's about nine, maybe eight. But he begins with the word Blessed. Without a doubt, he wants us to know that those in the kingdom are blessed. And the word blessed, it means they're, they're commended, they're favored, they're approved of by God. Jesus is saying, look, if you enter into the kingdom of heaven, you are blessed. All the citizens of the kingdom have the favor of God upon them. They're blessed and have fullness of joy. Jesus is saying that true, everlasting happiness is found In him, in the kingdom of heaven, which then means, the implication is your best life will not be found in your work, in your money, in your possessions, or your relationships, but in Jesus, in his kingdom, under his rule. Now, when we look at these Beatitudes, they seem to be a little bit of a paradox at first, like jumbo Shrimp. You will get that, like these two things that don't seem like they go together? Like he says, the poor in spirit are blessed. And you're like, well, that's, that's strange. Those who mourn are blessed. Those who are persecuted are blessed. And that doesn't really sound like the blessed life. You might be saying, well, if that's the blessed life that Jesus offers, I'm not sure I actually want that. Again, this is where we come back and we remember the kingdom is what? It's present and future. So you have to hold that at all times. Think of, a, think of a father who he, he purchases and promises his 15-year-old son a beautiful red sports car. Now, I don't advise that kind of parenting. and He's just going to wreck it, but let's just pretend that's what the father does. And he promises and he purchases it and he parks it in the driveway and he says, son, this is your car. Now, he's 15. It's his car, but he can't drive it until later. So every day this son comes home. And he washes the car. He knows every curve and every line of the car. He sits in the car. He holds on to the wheel. He puts his hand on the shifter. He imagines he's like on Highway 1 going down the coast. He's enjoying every single moment. And yet, even though this car impacts his life now, he'll experience the fullness of it later when he turns 16. It's his And you'll experience it more in the future. Jesus promises all these blessings and all these rewards of the kingdom now. And yet we'll experience the fullness of them in the future. Does that make sense? We're tasting them. We're getting them. They are ours. And yet the fullness of them will be when Christ returns. These rewards are the means of fueling our obedience and joy in the present does that make sense so he gives us to him now he says this is yours and because this is yours live this way so we're going to look at each of these beatitudes i thought about should we just group them together should we summarize them i was like no let's let's walk through each of them we're not going to talk about a whole lot about each one but i think it's worth looking at each of these these beatitudes blessed statements there's two things i really want us to see what is the reward promise? What's the blessing? And then secondly, what is, um, what is the required action that God is, is calling us to do? And when I say required, don't think we do these things, we live this way to earn the blessings. That would, it would turn this upside down and no longer would salvation be by grace, but we'd be told to, to earn it as if Salvation was a paycheck. Well, you did your work, so now God owes it to you. But rather, think of it like this. The blessing God gives creates the lifestyle required. Does that make sense? So he gives the blessing, and the blessing, the grace of God, creates the lifestyle in which he requires. And so let's walk through them one at a time. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you read that? There's a lot up there. I see him back there, and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of words. Now, Jesus is not saying that every believer is to be financially poor. But what he is saying is that we come in complete and absolute dependence upon Jesus. No one enters the kingdom of heaven because of all the stuff they have. Like, we're not impressing God. He's not looking at you going, wow, look at your car. Wow, look at the things you, you've accumulated here on earth. He's not impressed by what you have. And so rather, he says, come to me needy. Don't come to me thinking you're impressing me. Don't come to me thinking that you're earning your way into the kingdom. He says, come completely and absolutely dependent upon the king. And then notice what the king does. What does he give you? The kingdom. We don't need to come with things because when we come empty, Jesus gives us The kingdom. And all these other blessings we we read of are blessings within the kingdom. You can't separate any of them from the kingdom. And so when Jesus says, I give you the kingdom, he gives us everything that he has. All the inheritance, all the riches of God now become for those who believe in Christ. Listen to what uh, Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 66. Just think about these words. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So he's literally saying, I've made everything. What would you, what would you bring to me that would impress me? You can't build me anything. I made everything that you see. So God here is, be, is being presented infinitely rich. And yet, this is what he says, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, the one who is needy, the one who is poor in spirit, the one who comes and depends upon me, I give everything. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We've just been given the kingdom. What are we mourning about? We literally have everything from God. So why why is he saying, blessed are we for mourning? What are we upset about? When we behold the perfect holiness of God, immediately we become aware of our own sins. You see, Jesus calls us not just to acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, but to hate our sin, to mourn over our sin. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture. Many of you might remember uh, Paul in Romans chapter 7. He talks about his life as a Christian and that he wrestles with his sin. And in chapter 7, verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. Have you ever felt like that as a Christian? Because you just wrestle with sin. You're like, oh, I hate this sin. Or, or Isaiah, when he has this vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, this is what he sees. He sees God in his throne and all of his glory and all of his splendor. And then he says, Whoa is me for i am lost and i'm a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips seeing the very glory and splendor of god makes him aware of how unworthy he is so he hates us and he mourns over his sin and so we're called as we as we look at our lives and we do things sometimes that, that god does not please we we would hate those things we'd ask forgiveness And the great thing is, is when we sin and and when we turn from God and we rebel against his rule, we don't have to run from God, but we can run to him because he says he will comfort us. In fact, Revelation chapter 7 verse 17, and I think in Revelation uh, 21 verse 4, it says that there's a day coming when Christ returns and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. He's saying you you can mourn over your sin, you can run to God, and he will Comfort you. All who have believed in Christ, receive his grace, receive his kindness, receive his forgiveness. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is a strange word. I doubt any of you use the word meek today. As you come here, you didn't say, honey, don't forget to be meek today. You don't probably tell your kids as they're going off to school, be meek. That's a word we don't use much, but we, we probably should. At first, it it might, you might think it communicates weakness. But we couldn't be more wrong. Think of uh, to be meek is, is to be strong. Think of a stallion, like a giant, powerful horse, and yet when the bridle is placed in, it's controlled. It's not wild. The meek one is the the meek person is the one who has learned to control their desires. They're content with placing the needs of others before their own. They don't. They don't do that because they're, they're pushovers, but because in Christ, they have everything. What, what does Jesus give? What does he give the meek? Blessed are the meek for what? Because they will inherit what? The earth. Can you even imagine that? Like when my, when my mom passed away, my sister and I, we inherited a, a small uh, portion of farmland in Oklahoma. Southwest Oklahoma. It's like 120 degrees there all the time. (laughs) I have no desire to go there, but we we own this farmland. It's not enough to, like, live off of. It provides a little bit of income, but surely not enough to survive on. Listen, when when we come to God, he doesn't say, oh, let me give you this beachfront property. or, Or let me give you this little mountain view. Or rather, he says that those things aren't enough. I give you the earth. Can you comprehend? Like he's not giving you a, a little house and a little area. He says all of earth is now yours. When we, we live in a world that says you need more and more. And really what that means is you just need more than the other person next to you. You just need to make more. You need to have more than that person. But the Christian. We're content, we're meek, we're content to serve others, to take the smaller portion, to be last in line, to take the seats of less importance. Why? Because in Christ, we have everything. We don't need to vie for levels of importance. Christ has given us the earth. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't think many of us know hunger very well. Some of us have gone without some meals at a time, some of us are probably Sometimes feel like we should go, without more, go more without meals. But in reality, we always have food around us, right? There's always food. There's something around us. If you have kids, there's always food in your keep vehicle, right? Might be a few weeks old. But there's food there. You could find it. Might be able to eat it. But think about those that Jesus speaks to in the first century. They, they survive off what they, they catch, Or what they grow. And so the seasons aren't right. If the weather's not right. Then they don't have anything. And they don't have any food. These people, they know hunger. And Jesus is turning to these people. Who they're very familiar with hunger and says. If you turn to me. And you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be satisfied. Now every time Matthew uses the word righteousness. In his gospel. He's referring to righteous living conduct. The way we live. He says, live a godly life, and you will be satisfied. If we could summarize the teachings of Jesus, he would say, love God, love others. And if I could just give a personal testimony that what I have found in my own life, the more that I know Christ, the more that I live for Christ, is the more that I love him and the things of this world become less appealing. I'd venture to say that if you're a believer, you would affirm that also. The more you know Christ, the more you know who he is and all that he's given you. It's not that things aren't important. It's not that we don't need stuff or even like stuff. But no longer do we look to the things of earth to satisfy us. Number five, he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you need a definition of mercy, mercy is God's goodness given to those in misery. It's given to those in misery. And because we are sinful, every act of God, God's goodness is not only grace towards us, but it's also mercy. And so he says, as Christians, we're to be known for our kindness, for our compassion, for our love, for mercy. Many of you might remember the disciple Peter. And in Matthew 18, Jesus talked about how we are to be a forgiving people. And so, so Peter's wrestling with what this means, and he's trying to get some implications for this. And so he turns to Jesus, and he goes, so, like, how forgiving are we supposed to be? In other words, how merciful are we really supposed to be? Like, like if somebody offends me seven times, like, do I forgive them seven times? And if you think about it, that's it's probably just somewhat how we think of things. We have this limit that if someone crosses it, we go, you know, I'm I'm just going to have to cut them off now. And so Jesus responds and goes, no, Peter. Not seven times. But do you remember what he says? But 70 times seven. And the idea is not that we'd count and keep tally 490. You you made it. Now I cut you off. But the idea is we're known to be merciful. We're known to be a forgiving people. You might say, "Well, well, why are we so forgiving? How are we so forgiving? Because when we... When we look at the gospel, when we look at what Jesus has done, we see that God sent Jesus to this earth, that he would come and die on a cross for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve so we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. And the point is, if he forgave all that we have done, can we not forgive the small sins that we do towards one another? We are known, we are to be known for mercy. We don't hold grudges. We don't keep lists of wrongs. We forgive. And we can continue to forgive because God's mercy never runs out towards us. Even after 10,000 years of being with God, his mercy will not be one ounce closer to being dried up than it is right now. His mercy is infinite. So just as you come to him and he always has mercy, so now we as the citizens of his kingdom give mercy to others. Number six. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, just think about this promise. What does does Jesus say you have? Believe in me, and what do you get? You get God. Again, remember, whenever we think kingdom, we have to think God. Like, don't think, oh, we're giving these things of the kingdom, but God is something different. Like, God doesn't save us and say, you can be in the slave quarters over there, at a distance, at an arm's length. Or rather, God says, if, if you believe in me, if you trust in my son who died on the cross for your sins, you will live and dwell in my presence for all of eternity. You will see me. You will behold my glory, not from a distance, but from right up close. We will look into his face. What we're told is that when we, come, when we come to salvation, when we believe in Christ, we're given new hearts. And these hearts now desire God. Not perfectly. We know we still sin. But now we desire to please God. We desire to love God. And now we, we hate the things that he hates. Sin. Which is why we, we fight against anger, lust, immoral words, impure thoughts, sexual immorality, envy, hatred, greed. And we hate those things because... They don't please God. Those are the way we used to live, but when we come to Christ, we now live in a way that honors him. Why? Because we want to see God. We've been given new hearts, pure hearts, and we live in accordance with these hearts because we desire God. Sin promises happiness, but it can never truly desire. We know this because when we look at the world, we don't see happy people, right? We don't see people filled with joy. Look at Facebook or whatever social media account is popular now. We don't see people just ecstatic with life. We're Complaining about this. We're complaining about this. We're complaining about this. And when we see someone have something, what do we do? I wish I had that. I deserve it more than they do. We're not happy for others, and we're not happy in ourselves. But yet we're told that when we come to Christ, we get God. Listen, the way we overcome sin is by reminding ourselves of the promises that God has given us. And one of the greatest promises that we can know is that when we have been saved, we get God. And the evidence of our salvation is that we pursue him. We live righteous lives. And I'll tell you what, if you, if you struggle with sin, we overcome the promises of sin, which cannot ever really deliver, with the far greater, unbreakable, unsurpassable promises of God that always deliver. Does that make sense? Sin says you'll have joy, but it won't deliver. But we believe it, which is why we fall into those sins. The way we overcome those sins is with the far greater promise, the far greater joy. We get God. So when you're struggling with lust, when you're struggling with pornography, when you're struggling with the way you use your words, when you're struggling with, with various sins, don't just think, well, how do I just overcome them? How do I do it in my strength? No. Do I love this or do I love God more? And the more we know God, the more we love him, the more we see these sins for what they truly are. And we see that the promises they make can never deliver and they can never truly satisfy our hearts. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I'm guessing peacemaker sounds to you like the word meek. Weak, spineless, and a pushover. Like, I'm guessing so. None of us wakes up and go, I just want to be the biggest peacemaker today. Because we kind of think, like, do you not have a backbone? Like, take a stand for something. Now, peacemakers are not wimpy people. Rather, peacemakers are strong. Anyone can throw a temper tantrum, right? Anyone can fight for their own way. A three-year-old does that. So just think about that. How strong is a three-year-old? Not very strong. How much willpower does a three-year-old have? Not much willpower. You took their toy. They want their toy back. They will cry on the ground flailing until they get it back. But a peacemaker, a peacemaker is one who goes, no, no, I I don't want to cause division." I want to hold on to peace. I know they share in the very nature of Jesus. That's why it says we are will be called sons of God, not just that we're children of God. Children of God emphasizes we're adopted into His family, right? That's what children of God emphasizes. Sons of God emphasizes you have the character of God. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. Now, yes, when we believe in Christ, we become children of God. We're adopted into His family, but when we believe in Christ, we're also called sons of God. We now share in his character. And just as there's peace and love and unity within the Trinity, within God, so now we, we demonstrate peace and love and unity within our lives. We share in his very character. We show our Christ-likeness by striving for peace. Now, it's not that we, we hold peace at all times, if someone compromises on the gospel, we don't say, well, we don't want to say anything because, you know, we just want to hold peace. But, but when we come as a church, like we are right now, this should be one of the greatest demonstrations the world sees of peace every single week. Because there's, there's people here who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we say, like with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we maintain peace and we hold on to the unity of the church. And we're not going to let little things like like the color of the chairs or the carpets or what, what color are we going to paint things or where do we put the sign or, or what type of ministry you prefer over the ministry I prefer or, or do we have drums or not drums or, or whatever it could be. Aaron, I like drums. Don't worry. We're good, man. He's all nervous now. I can see it. But we don't let those things cause division. We're not fighting for our own way. We hold peace because there's something much greater here than just the color or the type of sound we like. It's holding on to the unity that we have in Christ. So blessed are the peacemakers. We're called sons of God. We share in his character. Last one, number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is where we're all like, ah, well, hold on here. Like I'm good with one through seven. Nowhere in scripture... Do we see that the Christian is promised worldly riches in this world? This is where we come back to the present and future understanding of the kingdom. Remember that? It's present, and yet the greater experience of it will be in the future. This is why in verse 12, we read, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus wants us to know, You'll be persecuted if you enter the kingdom. We live in a dark world. You're entering the kingdom of light. So there's an opposition here. There's a conflict here. And so Jesus says, this isn't anything new. Just look back into the Old Testament. Do you remember Elijah? Do you remember the persecutions he went through? Do you remember Isaiah? Do you remember all these Old Testament prophets and the struggles that they went through? Do you remember John the Baptist in chapter 3? He's... Or in chapter 4, it says he's arrested and soon he'll be beheaded. Jesus himself will be crucified. The apostles will be, some will be crucified, tortured, and killed. So why would we think anything else would be different for us? In fact, Jesus himself says in John 15, 19, If you're of the world, the world will love you. If you're of the kingdom of darkness, darkness loves darkness. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world is hate you. You're in the kingdom of light. You have a new citizenship. Now persecution does not only mean imprisonment, beheadings, and crucifixions. That's not the only thing that it can mean. It certainly can mean that. And when we hear about different testimonies like in India, North Korea, and places, we see some very violent forms of persecution. And yet in verse 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account. So, what does persecution also entail? It entails gossip and slander and lies that are said on account of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a jerk and you get persecuted, that's not being persecuted for the faith. Let's be clear. Let's not equate that. So, why should we be full of joy when we face persecution, though? Why can we endure this? Look at the promise. You've been given the kingdom of heaven. You have everlasting life in the presence of God, enjoying the rule of God forever. The most the world can do to you is kill you. And you might say, well, that seems like a lot. Like, that's a lot, right? But if you believe in Christ, then what's the truth? The truth is you have eternal citizenship with God. The truth is this life is what James calls a momentary vapor. Remember that? Or in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're in prison. What are they doing at midnight in prison? Singing songs of praise. What kind of crazy people are they? Oh, they might know something. Life is a vapor. And while our lives might be hindered here, while we might experience extreme discomfort here, We're given the kingdom of heaven and everlasting joy in the presence of God for all of eternity. The most the world can do to you is kill you. It can never take your eternal kingdom citizenship away. You are promised to live in and with the rule and reign of God forever. You are promised unending joy in the presence of your king. Death cannot take that from you, and we can't forget that, which is why verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great. Where? in heaven what's he doing he's reorienting our mind from right now in the present i have to have everything now to say no 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 delayed gratification the way we show this world the love of christ is not by holding on to the things of this world but by living differently and it might cause some discomforts maybe even our lives well but it can never take our citizenship it can never take our salvation in Christ. In Christ, we've been given everything. And it's because we're guaranteed eternal life with God that we can boldly take the gospel into difficult places in the world where it even might cost us our lives. We don't fear threats or death because in Christ, we're held secure. We've been given the kingdom. We're promised eternal life and the world. Cannot change that. We need to know that truth. Now, I realize that this last beatitude all makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Like, like we're okay with a lot of Christianity, but there's parts that really press us in because it really rubs against our faith. It's, do we really believe in Jesus? Do we really believe in his word? Remember this. When you come to Christ, Scripture says you're now, you're now a new creation. You have a new citizenship. You are now Aliens and strangers in this world. Persecution is a means in which we live out those very truths. So it's easy to say, yes, blessed are the aliens and strangers in this world. Yes, I love that. What's the implication of that? That we don't necessarily belong. And there will be persecution there. Now maybe you look at this a little bit differently. If all of a sudden you had to move, let's say to Kenya, totally different country, totally different culture, would you stand out? Would you look different, act different, eat different? Yes, especially at first, you totally would, because you'd be a stranger there. And that's what God is calling us to live like now on this earth. Remember, chapter 4, Jesus comes into the world, and the world is called what? Darkness. Establishes the kingdom of light. New kingdom, in a dark world, there's going to be a different citizenship. We're going to live in a different way in this world. Or to think of it this way, maybe one from, from nature. Many of you know caterpillars? Wonderful little creatures that just crawl. Fuzzy. Fuzzy. <laughs> kind of disgusting. But when they, when they turn into a butterfly, do you notice that they live different? They don't crawl everywhere. What do they do now? They fly. Isn't that amazing? They fly. Totally different new life. That's what the Christian is in this world. We believe in Christ. We're now a kingdom in the citizen of, we're a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We live different. Different in this world. This brings us to the final point. Every believer is called to live out their new eternal citizenship in the darkness of this world. And I love the way Matthew ends this little section right here. He gives two pictures. He says, you're salt of the earth, you're light of the world. Now, the point's not really hard that he's making here. Both salt and light can be used in a right way, and they can be used in a wrong way. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, what's it good for? Nothing. Trample it under your feet. If light is placed under a basket, is it good for anything? No, it's worthless. It's worthless. Now, parents, you probably know this. You probably do this. You ever tell your kids when they go to a different part of the house, go back and turn off the light in your room? <laughs> All throughout my growing up years, my mom would say, Nick, go back upstairs and turn off your light. Nobody's in there. We don't need lights in rooms where there's nobody at. I think that's how we understand this passage with electricity. But now think before electricity. Like when Jesus is speaking to these people, they don't have iPhones and night lights and a million glowing things all in their house. At night, it's dark. And in their house, they can see nothing. When you light the candle, how ridiculous would it be to put the candle in the closet or under a basket when you have nothing else? Foolish. You need the light. You need the candle. Without it, you have nothing. And that's what Jesus says you are in this world. When we believe in Christ, we're salt, we're light in this world. We are the light that this world needs and requires if it's going to hear and know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, enter into the kingdom, live this way, and by your good works, they will see the beauty of the gospel, and they will give praise to your God who is in heaven. And you might say, what are these good works? Go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Live this way, and oh, you will be light in this world. And people will hear your words, and they will see your lifestyle, and they will say, I want that. And on that day that Christ returns, they will enter into the kingdom with him, with you, and give praise to God for all of eternity. That's what Matthew is saying here. That is the first sermon that Jesus is beginning to give here in Matthew chapter 5. Don't underestimate the power of your words and your actions. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you are the light of the world. We're told in Matthew 4, Jesus is light because you believed in him. His spirit is in you that you would be light. And the world needs Christians to live out their faith so that the gospel goes forth. The gospel doesn't go forth if Christians don't live out their faith. You are the means. God has chosen that the gospel would go forth and more people would know Christ and hear the gospel. That's why... What a blessing it is. Audiel and, and Christina and the whole Bias family going to Dominican, sharing the gospel. Why is that good news? They're taking light into dark places. Why is it good news that you go into work on Monday? Because you're taking light into a dark place. Why is it a good, new, good idea for you to know your neighbors? You're taking light into dark places. Where we go, where we speak, and where we act, we're demonstrating the love of Christ, and we're speaking the very truth of the gospel. I encourage you use these beatitudes as your prayer guide. Pray and thank God for the blessings and rewards that he gives you and pray and ask God for strength and grace and boldness to live out these beatitudes. Let this be your prayer list for yourself, for your family, and for us as a church. We ought to agree with the world in its desire for happiness. Yes, We're made for happiness, and we should go after it. But we disagree with where that happiness and joy is found. They will look for it in the world, in possessions, in things of this world. But we look to Christ. We look to God for all that he's given us. You have been saved and given every blessing of God that you would now live a joy-filled, righteous life so others would be saved. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, I would ask you, will you trust in Christ? Will you believe in him today? Will you enter the kingdom? Will you walk the narrow path that he calls you to? Will you bear fruit in keeping with the kingdom? Will you build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ? Or will you reject that? Will you pursue the things of the world thinking that they will satisfy you? And if you do that, you'll find, have you ever tried to grab water and hold on to it? What does it do? It just streams through your fingers. That's the best that the world can do. they will make your hand wet, but you cannot hold on to it. Will you enter the kingdom and trust in Christ? Will you live as light in the world? Will you experience everlasting joy and happiness, beginning now and for all of eternity? Or will you reject him? That's the point of the sermon that he's bringing. Will you enter or will you not? And I encourage you to enter the kingdom of God know the joy, know the happiness, know the eternal life that God gives. You have been saved and given every blessing of God that you would live a new joy-filled, righteous life so others would be saved. Let us pray, and we're going to take communion this morning as we celebrate what God has done for us. Father, Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you for the unfading, undefiled, imperishable rewards that you promise us. May we see and know that you are our greatest joy, that there is no true, lasting joy apart from you. God, help us to know that truth, believe that truth, and live out that truth. And Father, may we know that you are the light of the world. You have placed your spirit in us that we would shine forth your love and your truth in this world. May we not hide your light, give us boldness to tell others the gospel, and show them your love, that they would believe in you. Use us to save others and bring them out of the darkness. God, I pray every person here would know the truth of your son and that we would all enter the kingdom. God, soften our hearts today. May your spirit work and bring us all into the kingdom. May we know you and trust in you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.